I want you to uh, imagine a wealthy family who had to flee an African country which was spiralling into chaos and civil war. And their little daughter grows up in the UK longing to return. Though she was five when she left, she has vivid happy memories of the house and village that she was born in. She remembers the warm African sun and the cool marble floors of her house. She remembers the spicy rich smells of the kitchen where she would play at the feet of the family cook. She remembers running through the village with her little friends. She remembers walking in the hills behind the village and picking cyclamen to bring home. And she wants to go back. Her father remonstrates with her. Aren't we happy here, he says? We have a good life here. And we're together as a family. We're privileged people. God has given us money and security and and one another. Isn't that enough, he says, but it is not for her. And every night when her mum or her dad tuck her up in bed and they settle to pray with her, she says, can we pray that we can go home? She resents her father for bringing her to this cold, crowded country. And after a number of years of this, her, her parents decide on a course of action. She is a teenager now and they decide that she's old enough to see a video that was made by a family friend of the village that they left. The camera is um, in a Land Rover as it approaches the village and she sees on the video something which is almost unrecognisable. Empty houses look now like, like, like scattered carcasses with gaping wounds and exposed skeletons. And her own home lies fallen with a, with a breached perimeter wall and rubble where there was once flowers. No children laugh in the street. No vendors cry out. A dog wanders aimlessly through the ruins. Down on the edge of the village is a large mound of earth. There's no memorial stone. There are no wreaths of flowers. But everyone knows what it is. It's the silent testimony of the deadly fruit of war. There's a sense in which Peter, as he writes this letter to Christians, there's a sense in which he is dealing with the same kind of problem that that girl's parents were dealing with. He's been reminding his Christian leaders. Remember, if you've been here over the uh, readers, uh, if you've been here over the last few weeks, he's been reminding them that when they became Christians, they too found themselves living as 
exiles. In their case, it was a sort of different kind of exile because they hadn't moved location at all. But they had changed their identity while still living in the same place. They had ceased to be now people of the world. They had become the people of God. So now Christians find themselves living in the same place, the place that once, before they were Christians, they fully called home, but now they are not at home. That's what Peter has been trying to get into our heads. We are, he says, exiles. We are scattered. We are foreigners because we no longer belong. We belong to another place. And the discomfort of that, he knows, makes every Christian at some point or another long to be back thoroughly at home in this world, thoroughly settled in this world. It's just uncomfortable as Christians to live in a world where everybody senses they don't quite belong. And Peter has, uh, Peter has been trying through this letter to help us to, to live that not-quite-at-home lifestyle. He's, he spoke at the beginning in chapter 1, for instance, about the joy of our future hope. It's one day we will be fully at home in the new heaven and the new earth, he says. And that, that gives us, gives us the, the joy and the strength and the ability to live now in this world, not quite at home. He spoke of the, the disciplines that we need as we live as those not quite at home people, those foreigners. He spoke of uh, the privileges that we have. We are, he said, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Though we're not quite at home in this world, it is an enormously privileged status to have. And he's spoken in uh, chapter 2 and on into chapter 3 of then how we as believers can live lives um, commending the gospel. Thank you, Jesus. Commending uh, the, the, the gospel at work, do you remember, in the family, even in the life of the, uh, uh, life of the church. He has been training us then to live as people who are not at home any longer in this world, who are foreigners. But in uh, 1 Peter 4, he um, uh, switches to a, a slightly different tactic to help us to live that life, embrace that life. He's actually doing what the parents of that little teenage girl did. And it's painful, we will see. But perhaps it's necessary if we're to be reconciled to this life. He points out really how bad it would be to live fully at home in this world. Verses 1 to uh, uh, 6, he's going to speak then of the reality of this world and then in verses 
7 to 11, he's going to speak of the imminence of the end. His main theme is, don't go back. The key thought that will help us to get into this uh, passage that we need to look at is found in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Whoever suffers in the body, he says, is, is done with sin. Many people, um, um, Bible commentators included, um, argue that that is, that is rubbish. Suffering is, is as often the occasion of sin, causes sin in, in some sense, uh, uh, causes turning away from God. I, I've seen it dozens of times. Personal tragedy can, can um, turn people into bitter God-haters. Now, now, we need to be aware, the Bible is perfectly aware of that possible consequence of suffering. But there is another one as well. In fact, another dynamic that particularly Peter expects to be working in the hearts of believers. Suffering, he says, for Christians, again and again, focuses our minds on ultimate reality. C.S. Lewis described uh, uh, suffering memorabilia as God's megaphone to a dying world. Suffering shouts to us about the decay and misery and mortality of this world and therefore it weans us off naive, childish attachment to this world. I could give you so many examples of that that I've seen. Uh, Did you notice, for instance, that the next Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin uh, Welby, was profoundly shaped by the tragic death of his daughter in a car accident. It changed the direction of his life so that it wasn't long before he left the oil industry and became a minister in the church. And almost every pastor can tell you such stories. Stories, for instance, about turbulent, difficult, grumpy church members who, after experiencing some suffering of of some kind, become a new character somehow. All All the petty angst that they had has drifted, has, has disappeared away because God has brought them face to face with ultimate reality. I mean, my own experience of coming to faith was very much associated in part with my eyes being open to the reality of suffering in this world. And I've seen so many others come to faith in that way. People through failed relationships or financial disasters or family breakdowns or illness the, 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 the funeral beat of uh, disappointment after disappointment after disappointment that drives people to God. Were they clutching at straws? No, they weren't. Their eyes were being forced open to see how paper thin the facade of this world is and particularly of this world's promises. 
No one who has truly known the reality of suffering will any longer be a starry-eyed optimist about this world. They will either be a resigned pessimist or they will seek another world. As a result, says Peter, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. And Peter then, to, 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 to drive it home, lists the evil human desires that people are liberated from. Verse 3, You have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. There's a massive overlap in meaning between all, all of those words. And they mostly have the sense of just uninhibitedly indulging human appetites. And the appetites themselves, we need to be clear, are not forbidden. He mentions lust, but the Bible is absolutely clear that sexual love is to be celebrated in the right context. He mentions drunkenness, but wine gladdens the heart, according to the psalmist, and is a good gift of God. He mentions orgies and carousing, which is all about unrestrained partying. But Peter, uh, sorry, Jesus first um, displayed his glory, says John in his gospel, at a party, turning water into wine. It is not the appetite for love and sex and food and wine and fun and parties which is wrong in itself. It is just if we make those appetites the, the absolute in our lives and we give them, therefore, an unrestrained indulgence, they morph in our lives into something much more dark and destructive. You know, the joy of erotic intimacy becomes a lonely addiction to porn. The, 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 the happy glass of Shiraz becomes liver cirrhosis. The, 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 the uh, joyful Christmas parties, work parties, become post, a source of post-Christmas shame and regret if they are indulged in an unrestrained way. And underneath it, says Peter, lies the deepest of all our vices, what he describes as detestable idolatry. Perhaps Peter did have in mind the idea of people going up to worship in pagan uh, temples, but the Bible makes it very, very clear that idolatry is much broader and deeper in the human heart than that. Greed, says the Apostle Paul, is idolatry. Indeed, allowing any appetite to become, uh, in our own minds, the source of our happiness and fulfilment places that appetite into an exalted place in our life that it cannot sustain. And a good thing, a good servant becomes a bad God. And the thing that brings us joy becomes a thing that brings us destruction and death. We are, by nature, idolaters. We are, in our very nature, people who turn away from the living God as the greatest source of our hope and contentment and satisfaction. 
and turn towards some other lesser thing which promises much and delivers little. Our whole culture is based on training people in that pattern of thinking. What do young people fill their minds with on the television as they grow up? Because what they're doing there is they are constructing a lifetime understanding of what will make them, make them happy. And so they flick through the channels and they spend some time admiring the cribs of the stars. They, they, they watch the latest music videos, either imagining that that attractive person might be their partner or they might become that attractive person. They admire sharp young adults who live in a broken world and yet can turn it into a comedy. They imagine themselves in suits or white coats or even these days as geeks with amazingly pretty female friends. And they dream. Those things are our idols. They build for us, you see, a picture of promises held out for us which will not deliver. One of the richest men in Britain is Nicholas Van Hoogstraten. He's a character and a half. Sort of modern day Scrooge figure. He is wealthy. He has up to four girlfriends on the go at any one time. Uh, he lives in a mansion. Um, in one documentary about him, he, obs- uh, he observed after successfully completing a multi-million pound deal, I don't feel happy at the completion. There is more pleasure in the journey than the destination. There's a man who, in one sense, has got there, certainly in some respects, of your average person's dream. And he's realised that actually chasing the dream is probably a happier place than getting there and discovering it's a nightmare. We must wake up. We must sit down and watch the video that that girl watched and have that childish naivety forced out of us. We are trained, our world trains us to pursue illusions which do not satisfy and that will only bring misery and death. And Peter says, see that, open your eyes so that you will stop longing to go back. No, you, you, you will find that there is plenty of pressure to go back because the rest of this world sees only their, the satisfaction of their immediate appetites 
as being worth living for. Verse 4, they are surround, they, 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 the world, are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living and they heap abuse on you. Yeah, there will be plenty of people in this world who are deeply surprised if you are a believer about the choices you have made. They, they say they are living the dream. What they're doing is living a lie. A lie which will start to fall apart in this life. It is absolutely guaranteed and then it will be smashed into a thousand pieces in the next. Verse 5. They will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So let me appeal to you. Let those realities, harsh as they are, purify you. God brings tastes of the troubles in this world into our lives in part as believers to help us to see how futile it is to long to go back. How foolish. You know, perhaps you've had some troubles. Perhaps, perhaps you've had a, a, an unsatisfactory relationship. What do you do? Chase the next one with all the more vigour? You'll find satisfaction and contentment in an eternal, intimate love that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've experienced personal failure. How do you respond to that? Redouble your efforts to succeed because that's what your life depends upon? Or do you find contentment in being loved by God despite all those failures? And perhaps you've experienced the sort of general middle-aged disappointment with life. And you find yourself dreaming about what might have been. Don't waste your time on it. No, you are eternally loved. You have been given gifts and opportunities by the living God that have not gone away. There is no fantasy, alternative life that somehow will, will, will bring you happiness. There is an opportunity now to embrace what God has given you in Christ and the life that you have and simply live it with all your might. Do not look back, says Peter. Perhaps you've experienced illness or, or, or worse still, you are facing the reality of your mortality. How do you respond to that? Do you simply fight it? As if your only hope rests in being well and not dying? I, frankly, there are a few more sad things to me than hearing 
Well, for instance, I heard about the, the death of the atheistic journalist Christopher Hitchens. He fought his illness to the end. I mean, there is a kind of heroism about that, like Custer's last stand, like the, uh, like the band playing uh, tunes on the Titanic as it went down. There is a sort of, there is a sort of tragic glory about that. But, but as we approach our death, life can be so much more than that. Indeed, these intonations of mortality, these experiences of suffering, can purify and strengthen and give us a stronger and stronger grasp on our relationship with God, a brighter and brighter uh, sense of vision of what God has called us to in his new creation. And a life like that ends in triumph. Not tragedy. Because the person has learned to live for Christ. Now, strip, strip the surface of this world, life in this world, and though it may look happy and jolly like that little five-year-old's village did, let me tell you the tanks are rolling up the valley. And a good father takes his child and he rescues her. As your heavenly father did for you. Don't look back. That's the reality of this world that Peter tries to paint for us then. And uh, then uh, he goes on to the imminence of the next world. Verse 7, the end of all things is near, he says. Life is not only not as good as we would pretend it to be, it is coming to an end. It is momentary. The Bible teaches that Jesus could return any time, that he certainly will at one time, but even if we do not see him return in our lifetime, the end for us is much closer than we might think. All of our children have had a peer, someone of their age, die. It's shocking. And frankly, even if you live your three school years and ten, that terminus will race towards you as life goes on. And Peter says, let the, let the shadow of the end, or, or perhaps it would be better to say, let the beautiful glory of the end Shape your life now. Let, let, let the shortness of the time you have left, for instance, shape how you think. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Think properly about this world. Think hard about this world. Think soberly about this world. Pray about this world. Don't take the lies that it shoves, you, shoves down your throat. Let the imminence of the end shape how you think. Let it shape how you relate as well, verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And, and more than just love in general, he particularly says, let it shape 
how you relate to strangers, verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. That translation, um, offer hospitality to one another, conjures up a sort of Western bourgeois image of inviting friends to dinner parties. And it's nothing about that at all, really, frankly. Literally, we should translate it, love strangers. By all means, invite your friends to dinner parties, but that's not what it's talking about. It is saying, reach out to people whom you do not know and love them. It is about in the family of God, at the end of our time together, not spotting your friends, spotting someone you don't know and taking an interest in them. It is about collectively, as the people of God, going out into the world and loving strangers. Oxford is absolutely full of them. It is a, it is a, a swarming, diverse city full of people who are strangers to the city, strangers to the country, and certainly strangers to us. And it is our fundamental duty to love them. There is an eternity to feast with your friends. There's just a little short time to reach out and love the stranger. The end is near. Let it shape as well this this sense of the imminence of the end. Let it shape how you serve. Verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. God did something absolutely amazing when he made you, says, uh, says Peter. He shaped you as a unique person to be useful in his world. He not only gave you life, he gave you a set of gifts and for a specific purpose, to serve others, he says. Quite clear, those gifts are not yours by rights. It's not some intrinsic um, virtue that you have. It is something that God gave, poured into your life. And he expects you, he says, to be a steward. He is the master. And you are a steward of those gifts. And they are to be stewarded for the benefit of others and the glory of God. The end is near, he says. You've only got a little while to do it. Do it. Some, he says, have the specific gift of speaking, verse 11. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Because speaks about the very words of God, it probably means, it means speaking in a sense of teaching the Bible. If you've got a gift of teaching, you have an obligation as a faithful steward to cultivate it and to use it for God's glory. And not to hang about on that. The end is near, he says. Get on with it. It is the most awesome privilege and responsibility to be given the very words of God to speak. We have our, we have our Spurgeon's classes to train people to teach the Bible better. God has given you a gift. Come along to that. Sign up for that. Use that gift. 
Verse 11 again. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever ever and ever. Amen. All gifts of service are God's good gifts to his church through you. Whether that is setting up chairs, whether it is doing the PA, whether it is visiting the sick, leading a home group standing in for Kate Blanche's maternity leave, any volunteers, we're still looking, whether it's being an elder, whether it's leading a home group, um, uh, all of those gifts are to be used for others that Jesus Christ may be praised forever. And uh, although I think the focus of these verses is on service within the church, because in verses 8 and 9 it repeatedly says one another, one another, nevertheless, Scripture is absolutely clear, those gifts that God has given you are for the world as well. For displaying Jesus' glory in the world. When you go to work on a Monday morning and you use the gifts that God has given you, Use them as stewards of, of God's gifts for his world. Life is short. It is far too short to mess around, to waste time, to look back, to linger. He says, that brevity should massively affect your attitudes. Your thinking your relationships, your attitudes towards your gifts. Serve Jesus Christ with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Because it won't be long before you see him face to face. So how are you going to respond? I mean, there, there are people here who are absolutely on the ball with that. There are people here who have devoted themselves wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ, who are not looking back. I, I, I applaud you. God is smiling on that. It is delightful to see. But I wonder, is that you? I wonder whether you might be someone who, actually in your heart most days, is a little bit of that teenage girl. Oh, I wish I could just be back in the world and not in this awkward place of being not quite at home. At the end of the video, that girl turned to her parents with tears in her eyes. I'm sorry I complained, Dad, she said. Thank you for rescuing me from that. Next day, she opened her eyes with a new thought in her heart. Now, she didn't want to go back. She'd been brought into a new life 
and given a new start. And she was going to live that new life that her dad had brought her to with all her heart.